the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the 2016 Harold Mitchell Development Policy Annual Lecture. The speaker is Dr. Mark Dybul, Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Stephen House, and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, today. Let's begin by acknowledging the first Australians, the traditional owners on whose lands we are meeting, and let us pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, thank you everyone for coming. We still do have a, a few seats uh, left, but I'm guessing that they'll be filled up by people who are just uh, running a bit late. Uh, but welcome if you're uh, joining us on live streaming. Uh, we are live streaming this event uh, around the world. Uh, we have a number of distinguished guests here today. I'd like to begin by welcoming Mr. Harold Mitchell, AC. Harold is, among many other things, the person after whom this lecture series, the Mitchell Orations, is named. He's our founding funder, and you'll be hearing from him shortly. Uh, I'd like to welcome our speaker, Dr. Mark Dybel, Executive Director of the Global Fund. Uh, we're very much looking forward to your lecture, Mark. And I'd also uh, like to acknowledge Bill Bartell, Director of the Pacific Friends of the Global Fund, who really made this event possible today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we're honoured to have the American Ambassador, uh, His Excellency Mr John Berry. We're delighted you could join us, Ambassador. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the former First Lady of Papua New Guinea, Lady Rosmarauta, and uh, the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Western Sydney, Professor Janice Reid. Also welcome former MP and uh, Minister Bob McMullen, and uh, acknowledge the Secretary of the Department of Finance, Jane Holton, who's here and will shortly be joined by Australia's Chief Medical Officer, Professor Chris Bagley. A number of my distinguished uh, colleagues are here as well, starting with the Vice-Chancellor himself, Professor Brian Schmidt, uh, Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, uh, Professor Veronica Taylor, uh, Director of the Crawford School, my Director, Professor Bob Brunig, as well as Director of the Research School of Population Health, Professor Archie Clements. Welcome to everyone. Uh, today's a very special day for the Development Policy Centre, and uh, if you don't know much about us, if you'd like to find out more, uh, we've actually just completed our annual report for 2015, so that's available outside. This is our fourth Mitchell oration. The series was designed to provide a forum at which the most pressing development issues could be addressed by the best minds. I'm probably biased, but I think so far the series has done that, and I'm sure today it will. Now, copies of the other lectures delivered in this series are available outside and, of course, on our website. Uh, as well as taking part in the fourth Mitchell oration, we're also very proud today to be launching another collaboration as part of our partnership with the Mitchell Foundation, the Harold Mitchell Foundation, that's the Mitchell Global Humanitarian Award. And so if you'll uh, excuse me, I'd just like to take a minute to tell you about this new initiative. The Mitchell Global Humanitarian Award is a new honour that will recognise Australians and others supported by Australian aid who have made an outstanding contribution to the cause of international development. Its aim is to educate and inspire. It will be given annually to a contribution to the cause of international development which inspires others, which is of lasting and significant value, which has a link to Australia, and which has not yet been adequately recognised. The successful awardee will be selected from a shortlist of aid profiles, which the Development Policy Centre will select and author. The aid profiles will be published throughout the year on our Dev Policy blog and in other outlets, and in fact the first one is coming out in the Canberra Times and online tomorrow. A distinguished selection panel for the award has been established, and uh, fortunately we've got two of them here today. 
So the panel will be chaired by Stephanie Copas campbell uh, who's an experienced development practitioner, currently director with the Harold Mitchell Foundation and executive director with the Oil Search Foundation. Uh, so welcome to Stephanie today. Another panel member is Bob McMullen, who I've already mentioned, former Parliamentary Secretary for International Development Assistance. And the third uh, panel member is Joe Chandler, award-winning journalist, author, and editor. The award will include a $10,000 donation to the charity of the awardee's choice, or to the cause of the awardee's choice. Uh, the winner of the first award will be announced in early 2017. So we're going to take this year to write up the first lot of aid profiles and from that select the award winner. So nominations for both the award and the aid profiles are welcome. Please send them to us. So that's an exciting initiative. There's a flyer outside. Uh, please take it away and um, tell others about it. Uh, but now back to, the, back to today's event, uh, the, the Mitchell Oration. And I'd now like to call on the Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University, uh, Professor Brian Schmidt. So please welcome Professor Schmidt. Thank you, Stephen. And please allow me to welcome you to the Australian National University. This is my second time uh, here at an event at Crawford in my very short time as Vice Chancellor, and it is great to see such high quality and interesting events uh, being here. And so I'm glad to see so many people here today, and it is my pleasure to uh, welcome you today for the 2016 Mitchell Oration. Harold, welcome to ANU. Uh, I have known Harold now for the last several years, uh, doing some interesting things down in Melbourne with respect to music, uh, but your passion in this area of development has been known to me, and we've had a chance to discuss it from everywhere from the Los Angeles Airport Lounge uh, to, uh, as I said, to Hammer, to Hammer Hall. Uh, so thank you for your personal friendship, but also thank you for being a great friend and supporter of the ANU and for so many things else around the country. I'm also pleased to welcome uh, Stephanie Campbell, director of the Harold Mitchell Foundation. Stephanie and I have an interesting connection, which is I think will be the only two people in this room who were born, or not born, but grew up in Alaska. So uh, she and I hold that together, and that's uh, how we were introduced for the first time. Uh, I also thank uh, the American ambassador to Australia, my other uh, alter ego, His Excellency John Barry. Thank you very much. And I will go on and on if I mention everyone here today, but uh, since I think most of you have been covered, welcome to you all, uh, whether or not you've been mentioned or not. It is a great audience that you get you, where there are interesting people popping up everywhere in this lecture theater. Of course, the person I really am here to welcome is our uh, speaker, Mark Dybel, executive director of the Global Fund and a distinguished scholar in his own right. We are very much looking for your address this afternoon, Mark. The Harold Mitchell Development Policy Lecture Series, of which Mark's lecture will be the fourth, is only one aspect of a broader collaboration between ANU and, the Harold, and Harold Mitchell and his foundation. Our partnership extends back to 2012 with the award of $2.5 million uh, in the form of a grant from Harold's foundation over five years to the Development Policy Center here, and that was matched by ANU. We are very proud of what the center has achieved in its relatively short existence. And as you can see in our annual report, 
There's a lot in here. It makes for great reading. I recommend it to you. Just two weeks ago, I opened uh, in my first event here at Crawford the 2016 Australasian Aid Conference, which the center also hosted, in which some 500 people participated, and it was a great event. In his opening address at the conference, Peter Varghese, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs, paid tribute to the work of the center, noting its quality and that it kept them, DFAT, on their toes. I think you could not ask for higher praise, as uh, I think Jane could tell you as a secretary. It's not often that secretaries like to be kept on their toes, but uh, we'll do our best. I also commend the center and the Harold Mitchell Foundation for their new initiative, which Stephen, which Stephen, uh, Stephen mentioned, the Mitchell Global Humanitarian Award, which will recognize Australians and others supported by, uh, by Australian aid who have made an outstanding contribution to the cause of international development. This is a very worthwhile initiative, and I was delighted to learn that the first person to be shortlisted for this award is, in fact, an ANU alum, Robin Alders, who graduated with a PhD from the ANU in veterinary immunology in 1989, and who has since undertaken pathbreaking work in combating Newcastle disease in Africa. Harold, we very much welcome our partnership with you. My first chance to welcome you here to the ANU. Our, our interactions with you are a model for this university, and I hope we can continue them with you and with others into the future. Bringing together leading thinking, thinkers and policymakers, having the brightest minds address the most pressing issues is very much what ANU is about. We are the national university, but our orientation is and has to be global. From this perspective, the Harold Mitchell Development Policy Lecture Series fits squarely in with the mission of the university. This series has already established a strong reputation for both excellence and relevance, and I'm sure Mark's lecture tonight, addressing critical issues of global health, development, and innovation, will make a substantial contribution, both to further enhance the reputation of the lecture series, but I think much more importantly, to our shared knowledge and understanding. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brian, for those for those words. Uh, it's now my great honor and privilege uh, to call on Harold Mitchell to come to the lectern to say a few words. So please welcome Harold Mitchell. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, and uh, Vice-Chancellor, firstly, can I congratulate you? This is the first time that I've been back here as an old friend to see you as Vice-Chancellor, an outstanding, outstanding Australian-American, as we were just talking about, that uh, it's so important. It's an incredible time in the world. The world has always been changing dramatically. Uh, uh, at a planned breakfast I had with Joseph Stiglitz in New York just three weeks ago, it was underscored the great difference that there is amongst the peoples of the world as the top 1% of people now move to a point where they have 40% of the world's wealth. The unevenness of what the world is is incumbent upon all of us to do something about it. I'm delighted, having spent 40-plus years in advertising, uh, to be able to look beyond what I can do uh, in the world. And so it was always a pleasure uh, when Stephen Howes approached me some four years ago, I think it was, to say he wants to make a difference in the world. And that's what we all want to do. Uh, you, you want to do what you can uh, in the immediate environment that you've got, and where you can do it outside that, you can. We're troubled, as you know, in so many parts of the world, but our near neighbours 
are the biggest troubling point that I've always seen. And uh, I congratulate you, uh, Vice-Chancellor, for what has been developed by yourself and others uh, inside the Crawford School. Every time uh, I look about and see the effect that you're having, I know that the little bit that I was able to help with is the world is made up of universities. I welcome other Vice-Chancellors I just saw here a little while ago, good friends from Papua New Guinea, and I'm looking so, uh, so much forward mark to what you have to say. I've read it, what you are, and I, um, and, uh, I, I, I know that we all are uh, encouraged that you're here. We're very lucky to have you in every way like that. But what we can do is about universities, it's about, about institutions, about countries, it's about governments. But mostly, this world is about people. And that's the one that makes the real difference. And so when Stephen told me uh, that he uh, had another initiative, uh, how good was it that he wants that the universe, the university, the Crawford School, and everything that we're involved with here wants to pick out an individual that has made a real difference. And so, uh, Stephen, thank you for what you've allowed us all to do, because it's the individuals of the world that encourages every other in individual to make a difference. As a total group of people, we can do what we can to make that difference. But in the end, it's us all as individuals. I'm not going to take any more time because today this is the fourth in a series which I should say, Mark, have been outstanding people before you. And you will add to that in every other way. I know and it'll make us tough for next year who we're going to get to follow you. We look forward to everything you've got to say. And thank you so much for coming. Oh, well, thank you, Harold. We very much appreciate your support over the years and the faith you've shown in us. Uh, now I'd like to call on the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, Professor Veronica Taylor. Uh, Veronica's a great supporter and a great champion for our college. Uh, today she's kindly agreed not only to introduce Mark, but to chair the lecture. So I'm now, in fact, going to hand over to you, Veronica, to take charge of proceedings. So please welcome Professor Veronica Taylor. Thanks so much, Stephen, and I join with you in welcoming all of our distinguished guests, uh, friends and colleagues here this evening. It's my honour to introduce to you uh, formerly Dr Mark Dybel, who will be delivering the 2016 Mitchell Oration. Mark has kindly agreed to uh, deliver the lecture and then also to engage uh, in uh, questions and, and conversation afterwards. Mark has worked on HIV and public health for more than 25 years as a clinician, scientist, teacher and administrator. After graduating from Georgetown Medical School in Washington, D.C., Mark joined the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where he conducted basic and clinical studies on HIV virology, immunology, and treatment optimization, including the first randomized controlled trial with combination antiretroviral therapy in Africa. Mark is also well known as the driving force in the formation of the US President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, better known as PEPFAR. He was appointed as its leader in 2006, becoming US Global AIDS Coordinator, and he served in that capacity until early 2009. Mark then served as co-director of the Global Health Law Program at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University, where he was a distinguished scholar. He took up the position as executive director with the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria in November 2012. Mark, you're eminently well qualified to address us on the topic of global health development and innovation, 
And judging from the title of your address this evening, we look forward to being excited and challenged and perhaps also a little bit frightened. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in warmly welcoming Dr. Mark Dival. Thank you very much, Dean. Um, uh, it's a great honor to be here, and I'd also like to begin by paying respects to uh, elders past and present of this great country. It's a great honor to be the uh, Harold Mitchell uh, speaker this year. Uh, although we just met, um, I have actually read about him uh, because there aren't a lot of philanthropists in this part of the world, um, and it's nice to, nice to meet one. Um, <laughs> And actually, like one, the one I know best, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, what impresses me the most about uh, what, what you've done is you fund ideas, whether it's the arts or this policy center, it's ideas, been understanding that ideas drive the world and drive positive change in the world and how ideas then translate into action. And I think this center is an example of that. Uh, and so I also, it's great to be here with um, our colleagues from the Australian government uh, and the people of Australia who drive the ideas, but also the change in action. Um, it's also a great pleasure to be here with Ambassador John Berry, uh, who actually is hosting me at his home, so I feel particularly thankful to him. Um, uh, and Jan uh, Reed, who knows academics extremely well, uh, having been a vice chancellor, now uh, chair of Friends, um, and Bill, who you all know. Lady Roz from Papua New Guinea, who is a driving force of many things in, in Papua New Guinea and around the world. But I really do want to thank the people and government uh, of Australia for the support for the Global Fund. And because they support not only money, but ideas, we really do view Australia's ideas and policy in this region as the driving force in this region because you know it best and are here. And that's important to us because the Global Fund was actually created as a fantastic idea. It was an idea that grew out of a radical change, revolution is not too strong of a word, and how we looked at development. Um, this is a dangerous thing to do in a university, um, so I'm going to encapsulate a very uh, Cliff Notes version of development, but the origins of development are not particularly savory. Um, it grew out of basically colonialism. Uh, there was no interest in the parts of the world uh, until colonies existed, and the healthcare and the education system and everything were basically built for colonies. Uh, missionary zeal was a piece of that, and that's basically how we functioned for over 100 years in development until World War I. Uh, and it was World War I that began to change things, not in this part of the world necessarily, but in Europe. It was actually the post-World World War I response, particularly around feeding people, that helped change in some sense the way people thought about development, not the way we think of it today, but how one country would actually act in a more humanitarian way in another country that wasn't related to something like colonialism. Very self-interested as well. Uh, as actually a lot of good development is. We then went into a period where development was largely driven by the Cold War. Uh, it was actually about winning friends, uh, paying friends, actually. Um, and that's not why people were in development. Certainly people uh, who worked in development didn't come from that perspective, but that's where the money came from. And post-colonial guilt, which drove a lot of the concern and engagement in development. 
And so it's not terribly surprising that literally if you go back 15 years ago before the revolution and how we looked at development, if you asked anyone in the world what was happening in nutrition or education or health, the answer would be we are spending X amount of money. It wasn't we are achieving, we are supporting, we are partnering with, it was we are spending X amount of money. An extraordinarily paternalistic view and largely built in two imp impulses. One, to feel better about yourself for what you've done to countries and people as your colonial past, and one to make people feel good about you as part of the Cold War. So it wasn't particularly surprising that the powers that be weren't overly interested in how the money was being spent, what results you were getting for the money that was being spent. The impulse for the spending, although not the doing, was fundamentally different. And then 2000 came. And while it was building up over time, 2000 was an extraordinary watershed in the history of development. For those of you who have an interest in this area, which I assume is most people in the room, I highly recommend you read something called the Monterey Consensus. The Monterey Consensus is about four pages. For those of you who work in international diplomacy, you know how rare that is. It's a few paragraphs that laid out founding new principles, a fundamentally new philosophical approach to development. Those principles were country ownership, moving past the paternalism, but actually to support and build countries to view them as partners, not as a paternalistic colony or not as a paternalistic entity, but as a true partner, in fact, the leading partner that we were all to support. The second was a results base, and I can't tell you how different it was 15 years ago. No one was talking about results. What was the money achieving? No one. In fact, when we created PEPFAR, we set specific goals. President Bush set very specific goals. We were roundly criticized by the development community for doing something like setting goals. People said, it's complicated. We just need to spend the money and we'll get some result, but you can't set a goal. Now everyone talks about results-based development. That was literally 15 years ago. So that results base was absolutely essential and actually very much related to country ownership. A third principle was all sectors needed to be involved. That development does not actually happen government to government. It happens people to people. And so you need the private sector. You need the faith sector and civil society in all its forms. You need people engaged. You need everyone engaged. Because development is about human beings. It's not about governments necessarily. The fourth fundamental principle was good governance. Now, we all tend to jump to corruption when we talk about good governance, but there's a lot in between good governance and corruption. And it's actually about accountability and transparency and good decision-making with accountability and transparency. And so that key principle of good governance, which again didn't exist, in fact, no one cared about governance, it was for those impulses we talked about, these four principles actually guided what is nothing short of a revolution in development. Another key factor of the Monterey Consensus was that economic growth and development was a key underpinning factor in overall development and that we needed to recognize the importance of economic growth and development to achieve basic development goals. That was pretty heady stuff. And it's been followed by multiple documents since then, the Paris Declaration, the Accra Accord, if I get them all right, Busan, uh, most recently financing for development, the, uh, the Accra Accord. So we went from four to five pages in what we tend to do in, in, in the world we do, and now it's about 500 pages. But it's basically the same principles, the same driving principles. It now just has taken the philosophy, the ideas, and tried to push on how we put them into action. 
The Global Fund, like Gavi actually, uh, many of you know, does vaccines, and the, Australia also is a huge supporter of, of Gavi, were actually created out of this revolution in development. In structure and in function, we were created to respond to that change, that philosophical shift, that country ownership, results-based, good governance in all sectors being involved. And that's why we are public-private partnerships. We're actually not part of the UN, although we love the UN and they're great technical partners and we work with them. We are public-private partnerships that were intended to respond to that new approach, that new philosophical approach. And in terms of the Global Fund, it's actually done pretty well. So since the Global Fund was created in 2002, the, the programs we support, and I'm very clear that it is not the Global Fund, it is not us in Geneva, it is the people and the programs we support have saved 17 million lives. 17 million lives. That's extraordinary. And we do it in a global way. There's a lot of disease around the world, and particularly HIV, TB, and malaria. There's a heavy burden uh, of these diseases in Africa, but it's not just Africa. Actually, this region is hugely important and is a region that can end malaria, can end tuberculosis, and can actually end HIV, probably before most other regions in the world. And so we stay global. And this is a really important number, especially for you, those of you who want to uh, in the Global Fund. For every dollar Australia has put into the Global Fund, we put 20 back into the Indo-Pacific region. That's a pretty good return on investment. I think Mr. Mitchell as a businessman would agree. 20 to 1 is not so bad. So it's actually done rather well globally, and it's done rather well in this region. But the interesting thing is the change in the world that Mr. Mitchell actually began to talk about. Because we went on in a very similar pattern in development for decades, and you could argue actually over a century, and then it all changed in 2000. And we are now in a period, and that was awfully exciting stuff, that was heady stuff. We are actually now in a period, just 15 years later, of an entirely different change because of the changing dynamic in the world. And it's based in changes in geopolitics and in power centers, and this region is certainly at the epicenter of that, as power is shifting back from where it was centuries ago, millennia ago, actually, back to the east. But it's also based in something Mr. Mitchell mentioned, which is gross inequity and growing inequity, uh, despite economic growth and despite efforts in development, and not, in, not unrelated, probably, instability as a consequence of this great change and flux in where we are. It's also driven in part by an interconnectedness that we have not had before. And that interconnectedness exists in cyberspace, but it also exists person to person. People are very mobile. There's enormous migration in the world today, and we can put up whatever we want, but that migration is going to continue because of the change and the movement of ideas and the movement that is possible because of connectivity in the world today. And that's not just refugees. We do see refugees and will see refugees, but it's actually the patterns of our life. It's the patterns of our world. It's the patterns of mobility, of ideas, but also of people. And all of that causes great insecurity. We as human beings are not particularly predisposed to massive change all at once, of massive flux in the world. Scientists can be pretty excited about that, but as people, we get very anxious about it. And that's true for nations and nation states in the post-Westphalia era, but it's also true of individual people that make up those nations. And that's why I picked the title, because it's a very exciting time 
really the most exciting time in the history of development, I think. Uh, and that's saying a lot, because it was pretty exciting 15 years ago. It's an extremely challenging time, but it's a little frightening because of this massive flux. And that is usually the stuff of innovation. Innovation is a lot easier when everything's in motion. It's harder when things are stable. And there are two ba basic paths. And for those of us who spend some time reading history, we've gone down the wrong path too many times. In the periods of flux, in the periods of general instability, personal instability and national instability and global instability, the path we have often gone down is isolationism and returning inward. It has been wrong and caused massive harm every time it's been done. It'd be wonderful if we learned from history just once. Or you can go down the other path, which is innovation, connectivity, ideas. Use the ideas that we have that will lead to action to change the world. And for all the problems in the world, we have an extraordinary opportunity, uh, an extraordinary moment where we can innovate. Gerard Manley Hopkins is a poet not many people know, but he's one of my favorite. And he was writing a little bit about this when he said, but for all that, nature is never spent. There is a dearest freshness deep down things. And that dearest freshness deep down things is actually expressed in the sustainable development goals that the world adopted not too long ago in New York. Because the sustainable de development goals are different in some, to some extent than the Millennium Development Goals, and they're different in two fundamental ways. One is they call on us to shift from a focus on individual issues, and that's not just HIV or TB or immunizations, that's issues, education, nutrition, whatever the issue in development is, that we move from just focusing on issues in isolation to focusing on people. Because people need multiple things. They don't just need health. They don't just need education. They need everything in order to be the person of equal opportunity they can and should be. And that's the second key part of the Sustainable Development Goals, the massive focus on equity, on equal opportunity, on the most vulnerable and marginalized in our populations to overcome the inequity that we are actually experiencing in the world. And for the first time, the sustainable development goals that we adopted are not just for low and middle income countries, they actually are for all countries, including high income countries. So that focus on a person is actually fundamentally a focus on equity and equal opportunity. And one of those sustainable development goals that are essential for us to achieve overcoming inequality and equity is ending the HIV, TB, and malaria epidemics, which is a part of the sustainable development goals. Because of the massive investment of the last 15 years, we are on the right side of the tipping point in all three of these diseases. The epidemics are in retreat, we're seeing declines in new infections, and we're seeing massive increase in care and treatment, which actually, because they're infectious diseases, contribute in a significant way to declining new infections. And that's hugely exciting. But the thing about infectious diseases is you actually have to end them. Because if you don't, they'll come right back. And that's the nature of infection, and they'll all often come back as they are in this region in the form of drug-resistant versions of those epidemics. And those are very dangerous because we don't always have the science, we don't always have the technology, and we definitely don't have the money to overcome resurgent epidemics. If we stay on the right side of the tipping point, if we get to the end of these epidemics, it will allow us to focus on other things. Many of the people in this room, the young people in this room, have never lived in a world without HIV. 
It's pretty extraordinary for people of our, some of us of our age, to think that the generation today have never lived in a world without HIV. But we are the generation that can actually end the epidemic. We have the science to do it. Malaria and TB have been around literally since recorded medical history. They have been around for millennia. We are the generation that can end two diseases that have been around for millennia. And you know we can, because Australia's done it. The only cases of malaria and TB you have, for the most part, are imported cases, just like the United States, just like most of Europe. But if we don't actually get them to the end, when they come back, it will be in a drug-resistant version, and unfortunately, you are seeing some of that. And that relates to health security. But before I get to health security, I want to really shout out what, what your country is doing on malaria elimination, because this is a region that can eliminate it. And the prime minister and the minister are focused on something called APLMA, which is something I, no one should ever have to remember. But it is a regional effort to come together as a region and end malaria in this region. And it is very possible. And just to emphasize the health security piece, where we see drug resistance to malaria is also in this region, in the Mekong Valley. And the only way to overcome that resistance is elimination. So it's great that Australia is leading this effort, and the Global Fund is here with that 20 to 1 return on investment to make a difference. But when you think about health security a little bit more broadly, the same mosquito that causes malaria causes dengue and causes Zika. So you put an insecticide-treated bed net out and you kill the mosquito. You do service to malaria, dengue, and Zika, and lots of other mosquito-borne diseases. So that's part of the integration that we're called to do in the SDGs, to look more broadly at, than individual diseases and individual issues, to look at how we deal with health and build a health system that can respond not only to individual diseases, but to other uh, epidemics as well. And in order to achieve all that, in order to stay on the right side of the tipping point, in order to achieve the end of these epidemics, in order to take advantage of the massive flux in the world and grab hold of it, the key is innovation. And that's another thing this country and that this government uh, and the governments actually throughout have focused on is innovation. How do we innovate? How do we take ideas and put them into action so that we can be a better world, a more perfect world, so that we can truly understand the dearest freshness, deep down things. For those of you who read um, uh, your local, well, not local, national papers, Jenny Hewitt, a really uh, uh, amazing woman, wrote a great piece today on the Global Fund that outlines some of the areas of innovation we're engaged in. And I just want to mention a couple of them because we're hyper excited about them. And they all relate to those new principles, the revolutionary ideas of 2000, where the principles are still valid, but how we implement them needs to change. The first actually relates to that idea of engaging all sectors, of not just being government to government, but to really look to see in a given location for an individual person in their community who is best suited to deliver services. And as great examples, all you have to do is go up to Papua New Guinea. Stephanie's here. She's the head of the Oil Search Foundation that's doing fantastic work implementing HIV programs because they can get up to TARU. They can actually put accountability and sustainability plans into place, and they're doing a really fantastic job. But so is World Vision and Save the Children and the Rotary Club that's actually done quite an excellent job in driving malaria rates down in Papua New Guinea despite all the challenges that are there. 
And so when we work with DFAT and the Australians on how we work in a place like Papua New Guinea, we look at who is the most innovative, best partner to deliver the services to the person at the site. And Lady Roz has been a great, uh, and I would say, all the scars on her back to show it, uh, at bringing all of those partners together to drive to ensure results. A second key area relates to some of the key areas of a health system that we know impede not only results in HIV, TB, and malaria, but actually impede all health. And when we've done analyses of these, and we've gotten pretty good, we hire a lot of people from the private sector to help us, so we follow cash flow, and we follow results, and we follow discrepancies and disbursements compared to projected disbursements. And what we found and learned is that procurement and supply chain are two of the single biggest impediments to effective health systems. Healthcare workers are key, financial management is key, but the procurement and supply chain are often the stumbling block. And they're huge stumbling blocks to equity because you'll often get services and you'll get drugs and commodities into the capital cities, but it's very hard to get them out to the remote areas. And so building those procurement and supply systems are huge. We also need to be able to do better with the money we have and buy as much as we possibly can with the money we have. So we brought private sector pooled procurement. Now what pooled procurement means is the area under the curve. You can sell something, a hundred things for one dollar or you can send a hundred, sell a hundred things for a dollar and your area under the curve in terms of revenue is the same. So by having more procurement, more buying power, you can actually negotiate reduced rates. And so over the last two years, we have systematically done that. We've taken the middle people out of the way, negotiated with the other large procurers. Um, in the case, for example, of malaria bed nets, we are about 50% of external procurement for bed nets. But if you add UNICEF and the U.S. government and the U.K. government and you get 85 90%, we come together and negotiate with companies and you have volume that can reduce price. So in the last two years, in the last two years, we have reduced the price of long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets that kill the mosquitoes that cause malaria, dengue, and Zika by 40%. 40% in two years. That is breathtaking. That is taking ideas and implementing. That is taking best practice and implementing. That is taking advantage of all sectors and the know-how in all sectors to the best advantage where appropriate. We're now engaged in trying to do the same thing on supply chain. Uh, because supply chain is key to getting those commodities out to the most remote areas in a sustainable way. And you will have seen in Jenny's article that one thing we pioneered in Africa uh, with the Gates Foundation was to work with Coca-Cola. Because the insight was you can go to any village in Africa, and I can assure you any village in Africa, you will find Coca-Cola. You will find an empty formulary at the health clinic, but you will find Coca-Cola. Now, the original, the initial thing people think is, oh, throw that stuff on the trucks and it'll get out there. That's a really bad idea, and it's not sustainable. What we did is take the expertise of Coca-Cola to embed them in the Ministry of Health to sit with their supply chain people and build a supply chain for the country, for the national health care system. We did it first in Tanzania, and the president of Tanzania says without qualification that without that program, they would not have been able to turn their supply chain around. Now, because of the success in that program, we've taken it to nine, we're taking it to nine other countries in Africa, and we're working now with Coca-Cola here uh, to see if it's possible to do the same in Indonesia and in Papua New Guinea. These types of innovations, pulling from the sectors that can do the best job, there are some things the public sector is fantastic at, including pushing for equity. There are some things pieces of the private sector are fantastic at. There are some things that segments of the faith sector are fantastic at. The 
idea is to take the best ideas from wherever they are and turn them into action. And that leads to long-term sustainability. That leads to the ability to transition from external support, which is necessary for a time, to a country to be able to stand up and sit on it, stand on its own in health and in development. We've done a lot of work on this. We call it the development continuum, the pathway of a country from a challenging operating environment to self-sustaining state. And it's not a one-way path. Countries move up, and then they have either a natural disaster or a political disaster, and they can slide back. But you need to keep pushing and understand where a country is and what the pieces are that are necessary for it to develop, to be self-sustaining. And a piece of that is finance. And as countries grow their economies, they don't necessarily invest it in equity. And so just looking at gross national income and to say, well, we won't invest there because they have a high gross national income, right now, today, the majority of poor people in the world live in middle-income countries, 70%. The majority of people with HIV, TB, and malaria, non-communicable diseases, and everything else live in middle-income countries. So if we're right about the sustainable development goals, if we're right on the focus on the person, if we're right on equity, how do we not engage in middle-income countries but how do we engage in middle-income countries? What is the right role of an external financier when a country actually has revenue? And one of the ways we can do that is to stimulate countries to move from grants to loans, to actually take responsibility on their own, to do something that's somewhat complicated, and I'm learning far more than I wanted to about finance, what you would call a buy-down. So, for example, in Indonesia, we have about $100 million a year, thanks to the generosity of the people of Australia and other places. Given current interest rates, they can do somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 times that and use our grant to pay the interest so that over time they can build their own capacity to pay for that. So that 100 millions a year can turn into the money that they need to control their epidemics and build a health system. That's the, I saw Jane nodding, so I'm very happy about that because she knows a lot about this stuff. So we can do innovative approaches to finance for sustainability. You have to be careful in how you do this, and you can't do it the next day. It takes time and planning, and that's where real development, that's where that partnership comes in. That's where that shift from paternalism to partnership, to going country by country and then person by person. Who has the ideas and who can turn those ideas into reality? The last thing I want to mention, and this is hugely important, gets back to that equity piece. And something Michael Kirby and I wrote about last year, actually, the uniqueness of HIV and tuberculosis. Zika, or most infectious diseases, are by their nature great equalizers. They are terribly non-discriminatory. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, uh, in the old days, royal or not, if you came into contact with an infectious disease, you were as likely as your neighbor, depending on nutritional status and other things, to get sick and to die, or to just get sick and possibly recover. HIV and TB are remarkably discriminatory diseases. They prey on the most vulnerable and marginalized. And it is driven by discrimination. It is driven by inequity and inequality. And that's true in the LGBTI community. It's true in prisoners and migratory populations. It's true in sex workers. And the rate and people and rates are very high. But the, today, uh, Minister Bishop launched something hugely important in this country, and this is one of the few countries to do it, to have a national strategy on gender equity. Because the reality is that the epidemic, the HIV epidemic, whether it's in Papua New Guinea or in Southern Africa, is being driven by gender inequality. We are at risk, huge risk, of losing control of the HIV epidemic because 
of gender inequality, because of basic discrimination, because of how women are treated. 30% of women in some of these countries, up to 50% have their first sexual encounter through violence or abuse, which is a pattern that is repeated. Women are not only second-class citizens, in some countries they are non-citizens. Their birth isn't even recorded. They are that insignificant. And that inequality is driving the HIV epidemic. Let me give you a scary number. The rate of HIV among 18, 15 to 24-year-olds in some parts of Africa is 6 to 8% per year. That's incidence. That's not prevalent. 6 to 8% five to ten times more than young boys because of that gender inequality. Even if we reduce the rate of new infections in that group by 50%, the epidemic would still increase because the size of the population is doubling, and therefore the size of the pool entering risk is doubling. So if we don't get control of gender equality, we will lose the battle against HIV. Of all the investments we've made, of all the progress we've made, we will lose control of the epidemic. But what's really exciting is we, it's not just HIV. We actually can't achieve any of the sustainable development goals if we don't have a more gender equal world. Any one of them. It doesn't actually belong as a separate goal. It is the underlying goal that will allow us to achieve all of the sustainable development goals. And relative to linking areas, we're very active now, including with Julia Gillard, who's at the Global uh, Partnership for Education, in linking education and health for adolescent girls and young women, because the data show from Botswana, for example, that if a girl stays in secondary school, for each year she stays in secondary school, her risk of HIV drops by 12%. In a study in Malawi, girls that stayed in secondary school had a 60% reduction in risk of HIV. So we, an HIV organization, I was just in Swaziland, are now investing in innovative ideas, taking those ideas to provide incentives to keep girls in school. What else happens if a girl stays in school? She's much less likely to be a child bride. She's much less likely to be pregnant early. She's much more likely to have a smaller family. She's much more likely to have an income. And when a woman has money, and for all of us men, we, this is to our great shame, when a woman has money in the countries we work, she'll spend about 90% of it to feed, educate, and provide health care to her child. We men will spend about 30%. So you invest in health and education, and you turn the world. You turn the world into a gender-equal world. You turn the world into a world that will achieve the development potential we were intended to achieve. We will achieve the Millennium Development Goals. And what's exciting about that challenge and frightening growth in population of young people is it's also our salvation. The Romans had a great saying, there's hope in death, uh, meaning that you know, we'll, we with the bad ideas will eventually die and the next generation will take over. That normally takes several generations. <clears throat> because of the massive growth rate and the youth, if we can get to it now, if we can flip this syndrome of gender inequality, it can change in 10 to 15 years. It can change in a generation. We can have the world we need to have to, have to attack inequality. And so it is an exciting time. It's a challenging time. It's a frightening stuff time, but it really is the stuff of innovation, and if we stick to the ideas, if we have people like Harold Mitchell and this policy center and organizations like DFAT that are dedicated to taking ideas and putting them into action, if we stick to those principles, that philosophical shift that occurred in 2000 and implement them in better and smarter ways, we will be the world we want to be.
Martin Luther King had a lovely saying, many of them actually, the arc of history bends towards justice. The arc of history bends towards justice. It's up to us how quickly that bends. It's up to us how quickly we overcome inequality. It's up to us if we will take the ideas that will allow us to not just bend that curve, but to have it come to the equal, more perfect world we want to be. It's up to us. It's our decision. Thank all of you for your ideas and your action. If we do it all together, we'll get there. Thanks so much, Mark. That was tremendous. And you have also very generously allowed ample time for, for questions. So we will, as we uh, generally do, invite questions from you all. We'll ask you to uh, identify yourself and, if you wish, also your affiliation. Uh, to help Mark, we'll take two or three questions together and then invite Mark to respond. So for those uh, colleagues who are working the microphones, I'd ask you to uh, move to the people that I'm indicating in order and we'll take two or three questions and then go another round. Okay? So I'll invite our first question from, from the floor. Over here. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Dybal. That was an excellent talk, and you've done some great work at the Global Fund. Um, I'm Jane Van Vliet from DFAT. I actually used to manage our relationship with the Global Fund a little while ago. And um, I noticed when I was working on the Global Fund, there was a fair amount of criticism on the global stage about sectoral funds, and they're very focused, and they don't help the countries more broadly. Um, and I noticed you've been pushing, working on education in Africa and um, cross-sectoral work. And I was just wondering if you could reflect on that more broadly, how you're expanding your remit and how that fits into your funding model. Many thanks. We have another question down here. Hello, my name's Kerry Varney. I'm an academic here and I chair the advocacy subcommittee of the TB Forum. Uh, thank you, Dr. Darbel, for the excellent presentation. Um, I think, Dr. Darbel, you mentioned APOMA, the Asia-Pacific Leader Malaria Alliance, and we've had a lot of advocacy and support for the HIV issue in the region. We've got less commitment for tuberculosis and particularly drug-resistant TB in the region, and I think a lot less political commitment even from our own government. So I'm just wondering what you would recommend we would do uh, to increase that political commitment, particularly in the context of the NTB strategy. Thanks. Thanks. We might start with those and then we'll move across the room. Mark. Thank you. Um, both excellent questions. Um, so if you go back to the founding documents of the Global Fund, it was HIV, TB, and malaria, but the health systems piece was always there. At the beginning, and the partnership piece, that's how we solve these problems, partnership, right? They were always there, but we didn't implement that way at the beginning, which is natural, and I understand that. Uh, we need to get going. We need to support countries. We need to see results to maintain the financing. I did the same thing in the bilateral program. But the reality is, over time, partnerships are tough things, but you actually, it's much easier. You know, there's the African saying we always quote, if you want to go far, if you want to go, if you want to get somewhere fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, and it's very true. It's very hard. It's a lot of work to do partnership. It's easier to just go in and run a program. And that's what we did historically in development. 
But when you bring everyone together, you start seeing really exciting things and sustainable long-term things. And so the ideas were always there, but our actions didn't necessarily fit with them. So our remit actually hasn't fundamentally changed. We've just shifted how we act on the ideas and brought the movement and the knowledge and the uh, information that's come forward from implementing in countries and supporting countries to implement to change, which is how we got to the sustainable development goals. Because there was that recognition, the MDGs actually kind of pressed us to do that. The SDGs, we hope, will get us to do better. So there's a lot of debate in global health architecture and then development architecture of should we just start over, recreate something uh, that makes sense philosophically and from an ideal perspective. I've actually pushed for that when I was an academic. Um, and it's a great idea. It's a great idea. The problem is by the time we get around to it, development won't exist anymore. I mean, the, the political fights that are necessary for that are not worth it. What is worth it is partnering and supporting the countries. And that actually relates to the second question a bit on TB and how you support countries in different stages. At the beginning, uh, you're a challenging operating environment. You have to invest heavily in health systems. And we know this. We've seen that. Uh, or you're never going to get results in anything, HIV, TB, malaria, or anything, when you do a national response. You can do pilot projects, but you can't do a national response. As you move along the development continuum, hopefully in a direction, as you get close to self-sufficiency, and there are a few countries that are, even though they're not necessarily high income, we actually have started to see what some of those component pieces are. So how do we support them to build those so we can get there? And focusing on key effective populations is hugely important in upper middle income countries because it's very difficult for them to do it. And we've seen great success in some countries working in that really tough conversation to begin to change. So it really is how we partner with each other and do we, will we accept the sustainable development goal approach of focusing on a person, not an issue, and supporting a country to progress in development, or will we not? We're trying to be proactive in how we act on the idea and education and health and adolescent girls and young women is a great way to do it. But we also do nutrition, we also do in a lot of other areas. So I think it's incumbent on us, and I think an institution like this can really help create the ideas that will lead to the action, not of in best case scenario, how would we create a perfect architecture, but how do we create incentives and drive the change that's necessary. So TB is an interesting disease to me, and actually, I, and I get in trouble for saying it, it infuriates me that we haven't ended tuberculosis, right? Imagine if we had curative therapy in six months for HIV. Do you think we'd be accepting a 1.5% decline in new infections in TB and HIV if we had curative therapy in six months? Now, it's tough to diagnose, and we need innovation on diagnostics, and we have to really reach into the community and do active case detection. We actually have to change the ideas we've had in the past for hospitalized care, for how we do directly observe therapy, for how we actually understand adherence, and this is true in HIV as well. Bring in the social sciences. Get out. We have too many white doctors running around, to be honest. I'm one of them. Uh, we need to bring in people with ideas from other areas to help drive some of this. But a fundamental problem, and so the ideas need to shift, no question about it. But one of the issues is 70% of tuberculosis is in the BRICS, mostly in Indi India, China, South Africa, we have pretty substantial programs, 70%. Russia has one of the fastest growing rates, one of the fastest growing rates of drug resistance, as is true of Eastern Europe. That place to be doing massive program investments, which is why while we're at 70 to 80% of external financing for TB, 80% of financing comes from the countries themselves because of their economic status. 
So it really is about changing ideas and acting on them better and supporting countries in a way that is a partnership to help drive towards uh, elimination of tuberculosis. And basically, if India and China don't move, and Indonesia increasingly, given their increased rate, uh, we will not get there on tuberculosis. But we're not going to invest you know, billions of dollars in those countries. It would be inappropriate. They're in the wrong place on the development continuum, and it wouldn't be sustainable, and it wouldn't be the right approach. So then how do we do it? So I think the two questions are actually related, and they're excellent questions. We'll take a couple more. Sir, over here, and then over here. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I'm Michael Moore. I'm the CEO of the Public Health Association Australia and President-elect of the World Federation of Public Health Associations. Um, I was very interested to see when you're talking about partnerships, the one example you gave of uh, partnerships with industry was Coca-Cola. So I'm wondering where you draw the line in terms of working with industry. So you're prepared to work with Coca-Cola, are you prepared to work with alcohol companies, are you prepared to work with tobacco companies? And uh, because these all have pluses and minuses uh, in the uh, in the system. Um, thanks for your wonderful talk. I'm I'm Archie Clements, the director of the Research School of Population Health here at the ANU. My my question is about what happens when these diseases start to go away, um, particularly malaria, which is one of my interests. Um, the, the cost of maintaining freedom of disease and preventing resurgence is high, but the donor interest maybe may, may not be there. Um, what advice or what, what are your sort of plans for, for when things like malaria do start to go away? Um, yeah, that's my question. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, Michael, it's a good question and kind of gets back to the question on what's the per perfect global health architecture. Um, we can do whatever we want. People are going to buy what they want. And how you work with people is different. Anyone who wants to help, we want to work with. But we do have pretty strict conflict of interest policies. Um, and that's one of the reasons, for example, putting things on Coca-Cola trucks was a bad idea to all of us, right? It's different if you embed them in the Ministry of Health and try to work on a supply chain that works. And then you work with them. You then have a conversation with them. Cigarettes, I actually think we should ban cigarettes and have, you know, if we're going to do anything, have electronic cigarettes, uh, you know. But we work, we don't work very much with cigarette companies that I'm aware of. Uh, we might. Alcohol countries, companies we do work with, and again, because we have to, in, in Af sub-Saharan Africa, the alcohol companies own a lot of shabines, the neighborhood places where people go to drink. If you don't do HIV prevention in those places, you can forget about uh, having any impact on HIV. But at the same time, we work with governments like Botswana to actually have much more restrictive laws on alcohol and policing of alcohol and work with the companies to make sure that they have those policies. You can have that conversation if you're working with them. You can't have the conversation with your, if you're not working with them. And you can have it around health and their self-interest that over time they're going to be dinosaurs. They're going to be out of business if they don't start shifting and they need to engage in a different way. In a similar way, we can have a very different conversation with ministries of health, heads of state who we talk to, the faith community and countries with very restrictive laws around key affected populations because we enter from a health lens and we can talk with them about their congregation and the health of their congregation. We can stop working with a faith community because they have bad policies on key affected populations. If we do, we won't be dealing with anyone. So we have a saying, well, it's, we hardly invented it, but it's meet people where they are. Um, and we'd all like to be pure people that did everything right and saintly, but chances are we're not going to do that. 
So how do we not let the perfect be the enemy of the good? And what ideas do we have that can solve these problems by triangulating them, by squaring circles? And to me, that's the exciting thing about, say, the pooled procurement mechanism and the online version we've created called whambo.com of it, because we challenged our team and said, how do you square the circle of building this pooled procurement mechanism that's global for a sustainable long-term approach if the countries are using an external source? So we create an online mechanism that's priceline.com that is now being adopted in countries and integrated into the, the software is being integrated into the national system so they can participate in pooled procurement like you would on Priceline. That's how you square circles. So we need to square circles around some of these challenging issues. On malaria, it's true it's infection basis, right? So we need to stop looking at things on per infection basis for impact if we want to end epidemics. And we have to look at the cost of ending an epidemic. It actually is expensive, but it's a lot more expensive if the malaria comes back. And we've learned this, right? So I think you probably, many of you have probably heard this. When uh, the U.S. president's malaria initiative was announced, I happened to be uh, uh, with the Minister of Health of Zanzibar not long after, and he's like, oh, eliminating malaria? That's easy. We've done it three times. <laughs> so if you don't do the global approach, if you don't actually get to elimination, it's going to come back. To me, that comes back to ideas. How do you put forward the idea that if you don't get to elimination, it's going to come back? Do the costs, show the costs, show the cost of drug resistance and that you can't overcome drug resistance unless you overcome, unless you eliminate. Have the ideas, show how you implement them, and really create those partnerships. So, you know, this region, and I, again, Apple is doing a great job on it, the Asian Development Bank and ASEAN should just be putting more money into eliminating malaria. It's a massive economic drain in the country and in the region. And Apple is helping drive that. We can play a role in that. It's about ideas and driving the ideas and convincing the heads of state and ministers of finance and others that this is, this is what you need to do. And here, engaging the private sector is enormously helpful because they can go to the government and say, why am I going to invest in your country if malaria comes back? I'm not going to invest in a place if a third of the workforce is out during malaria season again with drug-resistant malaria. How do you engage the partners that are going to change that? And those are ideas. And you take those ideas and put them into action. And then last question, over here. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Douglas Robertson from the ANU. Um, would you, what would you say to the funders, the state funders of research in terms of the investments that they're making or should make in the three diseases and some of the challenges you mentioned about bringing in the social sciences? Uh, thank you. Um, my name's Jane Haycock. I work for the Innovation Exchange at DFAT. Um, I just wanted to bring you back to several of the points that you made in your talk about the focus on people and inequality in the SDGs. And this really isn't a question about HIV and ATB and malaria, but it's more a question about people and how, from all your experiences of partnering with the private and the public sector and with countries, where do we look for true expertise in understanding people? So where do we look to understand expertise so we can get people to make better choices in their health-seeking behaviour or just in their, in their lives, such that we're looking at, dif at a different disease burden, a different non-communicable disease burden into the future? So a question about people. Thank you. So two, two additional great questions. We're not a research institution, but we're doing something that we hope will help drive this change, which is quality assurance. Um, and it actually relates to the second question. It's actually happening in, in uh, Northern Europe and in the United States by Kaiser Permanente, where you're looking at quality assurance. 
we're not a technical agency, uh, and I can tell you part of the partnership is if we start inching into technical uh, support, we get slapped pretty quickly, uh, as we probably should, because there are technical, we don't have, we have two uh, long-term advisors in TB, two in HIV and two in malaria. We should not be engaging, you know, that's part of the partnership. Um, but quality assurance is different, and so we actually, what's been happening in healthcare in, in uh, Northern Europe uh, and again, Kaiser in the United States, is to look to see where you're getting good outcome and bad outcome. And we tend to take a national look. But when you start digging below national, you can actually start seeing spots that are performing at over 90% in whatever you're looking at, adherence or something else. And you can find places that are performing at 3%, 5%. And then you get a national average of 30% or 50%. So by really getting the data on a site-specific level or program-specific level, and in Europe, they've actually gone to provider-specific once they got past, uh, and they see the same fluctuation in the same institutions uh, with providers. Then you start building in quality assurance. And those are ideas, and that's, it's not research, but it's a way to really drive, and, and which gets to your question, who has the ideas, where are they coming from? They're almost always the community, whatever the community is. It's the community of practice of public health officials, it's the community of practice of community healthcare workers. If you show them a problem and have the data, we almost always find them solving it on their own. But they have to have the data. So one of the responses to Ebola um, and you know we're somewhat engaged in this, is build surveillance systems. I'm a huge fan of surveillance systems. We need surveillance systems. But surveillance isn't going to end an epidemic. And if you're waiting for a community healthcare worker to report to its supervisor, to its supervisor, to its supervisor, to its supervisor, to have a head of state look at it, to go to an international organization, before you make a decision and go back down the chain, you will have lost control of almost every epidemic. So what you really want to do is build data management systems, not surveillance systems, that create the data in each environment, including from the community healthcare worker to the national decision maker, that allows them to look at the data and make decisions and bring them together as communities of practice. And those communities of practice have been shown to find solutions and share them with each other. So they find a solution and then start sharing it around. Ethiopia's done this, Rwanda's done this, Nigeria, interestingly enough, is looking at it. But you have to change people's mind. It comes back to ideas. And data drive a lot of those ideas. So show the data on where you have a sh Most healthcare workers don't particularly want to provide bad healthcare. Uh, but they need to have the data. And if all they're doing is reporting, they're bored doing it, they're not interested in doing it, and they're not thinking about how to respond so that when the next bad thing happens, they're not going to respond. Uh, but if they're looking for fever and thinking about and have data on the number of people with fever in their environment, and you create the data, whatever it is, and it doesn't have to be computers. It can be a lot of different things. What we've seen is you can reduce, uh, you can improve impact and value for money significantly. So communities of practice, whatever those communities of practice are, come up with the ideas, then we have to have the guts to, to support them and solve them. And that's where that idea to implementation is so important. So I come back to Harold Mitchell, who's one of the people who funds ideas to action. And without people like him, and without people like you to do the work, we would never get there. But again, working together, we will bend that arc of this history towards justice. So thank you for all the work, and thank you for having me.
Thank you so very much, Mark. I'm going to uh, give the uh, floor now to uh, Stephanie Cobus-Campbell to make a formal uh, vote of thanks. Uh, Stephanie is a director and the former CEO of the Harold Mitchell Foundation. She's also closely linked to the Global Fund as the director of the Oil Search Foundation, and she's a very good friend of ANU and so a very appropriate person to close. Before she does, I would also like to invite you to stay for more conversation and questions. It's not quite a shabine, but we do have drinks to follow. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, and I'm losing my voice, so I'll, I'll be short. I am giving this vote of thanks with three different hats on tonight, and the first is as the director on the board of the Harold Mitchell Foundation, and I can't pass the opportunity to recognise Harold and everything that he does. And, Mark, you said it's rare to find a philanthropist in Australia. It's a heck of a lot rarer to find a philanthropist who gives into our region. And as you were speaking, you touched on a number of points that I thought, ah, oh, Harold's involved in that and he's involved in that. So he's been funding um, John Thwaites and Monash University to lead our region in um, developing the Sustainable Development Goals. And in fact, we just met with Jeffrey Sachs in New York um, not too long ago. He's been an active funder for programs in Papua New Guinea from um, snake bite to gender-based violence through some incredible work that um, Stephen and others are involved in um, to literacy programs in, in Papua New Guinea. He's been a personal mentor to Shanana Guzma, who um, was prime minister and, again, funded a number of really important programs in um, Timor, and he's chair of the Australian um, Indonesia Centre, and that's just what he does in the region. The list can go on for what he does to, for Australia. And of course, Tom Harold's been a proud supporter of the Development Policy Centre, so I want to, in this vote of thanks, to recognise and to um, thank Harold, who is, um, I'm proud to call, both a mentor and also a dear friend. So thank you, Harold. I remember when Stephen came to see Harold four years ago and I was in that meeting and Harold said, Stephen, I will fund you on one condition and that is that you become the very best in what you do in the entire world. And Stephen, you looked a little bit daunted by that, I have to say. <laughs> and maybe quietly confident, you knew you had it. Um, you knew you had the formula and, and there was a need for it. But I have to say, again, we were in New York recently and I heard from um, colleagues at UNICEF that they get their information on the Pacific through the Development Policy Centre. Um, heard similarly from, from colleagues in um, Geneva. They get their information on the Pacific and our region from the Development Policy Centre. I heard from... Um, someone in a little community in Papua New Guinea the other day that they were reading your blog at the Development Policy Centre. So you were making a worldwide impact and um, that performance indicator um, that Harold set for you, um, you're certainly well on your way. And again, thank you for everything that you do for development and also in our region. Um, it's, it's noted and appreciated. So the second... 
the, the second hat I wear today is um, my current job as a um, director on the board of the Oil Search Foundation. Oil Search is the largest company in Papua New Guinea, and we have a fairly comprehensive um, foundation funding programs in women's empowerment, um, health, and education. And we are a principal recipient for Global Fund implementing um, programs in HIV. And if I could recognise Lady Roz here tonight as well, who has been an absolute champion for all things HIV and now malaria and TB, as well as other things in PNG. And again, it's um, a pleasure to have you here tonight. Um, and thank you for all of your amazing work. And we can definitely um, recognize Ross tonight. And as Mark was talking, I was reflecting on how far we've come in the region and in particular in PNG on these three diseases. I think collectively um, the region has made a real headway in malaria. Um, we can't take our eye off that ball, but I was reading the other day that um, malaria rates for under five have decreased in Papua New Guinea from 24% to 3%, and that's an absolute achievement, absolute achievement. HIV, we've also come a heck of a long way. I remember when I started working um, in PNG in the year 2000, it was a doomsday scenario. It was going to be an African-like scenario. PNG had all the risk factors. And through the work of um, Lady Roz and many, many partners in Papua New Guinea through a multi-sectoral approach, as Mark mentioned, um, that has not come to play. But again, we cannot take our eye off that ball, and gender-based violence is one of many things that could prevent us from achieving our goals, and gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea is a particular challenge and something that multi-sectorally um, we all need to um, help to change. TB, I think, is still an absolute challenge. Last week I was in Gulf Province, which is right next to Western Province. So many people have heard of, of Western Province, not so much about poor little forgotten Gulf. I was in Kokori, at Kokori Hospital, a little district in Gulf Province. Their beds are overflowing with TB patients. Um, 60 out of 80 of their beds had TB cases. And um, many, many, many people aren't even accessing medical care. When they do start treatment, they're off of it pretty quickly because of all the challenges to stay on treatment in Papua New Guinea and in a really remote um, part of PNG Gulf. And I can tell you that multidrug-resistant tuberculosis is right throughout Gulf Province. It's right throughout Papua New Guinea, and it is on the increase. And again, this is something, it is a call to action for Australia. Multidrug-resistant, extreme drug-resistant, and TB in our region is here, and it is scary. And I have seen that firsthand just last week. So for our DFAT colleagues and others, you know, we, we do need to continue to get that message across. But Mark, you inspire me tonight, and I think the words that, that really made me excited, it is partnership, it's multi-sectoral approach, it's innovation, it's ideas, it's equality, and gender equality being so important. These are the call to action for change and to change the world, and together we can do great things when those elements are there. So thank you for reminding us of that. And I guess with the third hat on I have tonight is someone who is incredibly passionate about development in our region, in development in particular in Papua New Guinea, which is, is um, kind of the country for me. I said to people um, about 20 years ago, I fell in love with Papua New Guinea and I've been faithful ever since. Um, but um, thank you for everything the Global Fund does in PNG and the region. You are making a real difference and we look forward to our partnership with you for years to come. Thank you.
a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.